Hey, welcome back. It's another episode of Business of Film. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. Uh, this episode, I, I guarantee you are going to want to listen to this from the very beginning to the very end. We've got Ross Katz with us today. Ross started his career on Reservoir Dogs as a grip, has some stories from working on the front lines on that show, worked his way up uh, to working for Sidney Pollack, uh, amazing, and then went on to work for a company called Good Machine. And from there, uh, I guess, uh, catapulted himself into really the producing world uh, and worked on uh, a slew of just some award-winning and awesome films, including In the Bedroom. He produced Lost in Translation, uh, Marie Antoinette with uh, Sofia Coppola. Uh, great stories from his time working in Japan. Uh, you're going to love those. And, uh, and then a transition in his, in his career where he essentially jettisoned a successful producing career to follow his passion uh, of being a director and a writer. And, and we get into that, that choice that he made and how he went about doing it. So, Ross, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on the show, for sharing some of those stories with us. Uh, for those who are listening, you can connect with us on Twitter, at Craft Truck. You can send us a line well, with any questions or comments that you have. We'd love to hear them. We will get back to you. Coffee at crafttruck.com. And if you want to connect with Ross, uh, he is also on Twitter, Ross A. Katz. And finally, uh, this episode should be coming out on April 21st, uh, which is just a few days before Adult Beginners, his new film that he directed, comes out, uh, starring Nick Kroll, Rose Byrne, among other uh, amazing actors and actresses. So uh, please be sure to check out Adult Beginners. Um, I, I, I haven't yet had the chance to obviously see the film. Trail looks awesome, though, and so I highly recommend that you guys check out Adult Beginners when it does come out in just a few days. So uh, here we go business of film. Ross, thank you. Enjoy this episode. We'll be back next week. I just kind of gave a quick highlight of some of the, the films and projects that you've worked on, but maybe you could, in your own words, tell us a little bit about how you got started in the business and, uh, you know, how that's kind of proven well for you, I suppose. Um, sure. You know, I, I mean, I, I suppose everybody has, um, everybody who does what, what we do, um, has uh, you know a, a, a different path um, to getting there, and uh, mine is very roundabout. Um, I went to film school in Philadelphia at Temple University, and I went for two years, and then I dropped out. Not proud of that, but um, I just was you know it's a great school, great professors, but I was very eager to make a movie and get on a film set. So I drove my car to LA with very little money and rented a room and um, got a job, believe it or not, on Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, now, um, obviously, I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to stop you right yeah. there. Reservoir Dogs, how did that happen? You know, they used to have in Variety, um, this is, you know, I'm dating myself here because, you know, it was, it was the days when you would fax your resume um, and, uh, they had a films in production chart. And so a friend of mine said, just go to the films in production chart and variety and start faxing your resume out. So for, you know, production assistant or intern or anything. So, um, I, I noticed that Reservoir Dogs had Tim Roth and being the pretentious film student from Philadelphia that I was, 
I had, you know, been obsessed with this movie, Vincent and Theo, where Kim Roth plays Vincent Van Gogh. And so I was like, I got to get on this movie. I got to get on this movie. And I kept sending my resume, which had nothing on it. I mean, that's the funny part is like, you can send a resume. It's basically your name and address. Um, and uh, this, this very salty woman with a thick New York accent called me and said, do you want to come in for an interview to intern? And I said, yes, I will. And I, and, uh, I went down to Hollywood um, and I interviewed to become a grip um, for $50 a week uh, for a six day week. And it was, uh, it was, um, a spectacular experience. I mean, I was broker than broke. Um, but, uh, you know, Quentin sort of took a shine to me because, uh, I think some of the crew was a little bit salty and a little bit sort of cynical, like, you know, who is this guy? He's never made a movie before. He works at a video store. And I was just very excited to be on a set. And so Quentin was very good to me. And, you know, it was unforgettable. I mean, I had no idea it would become this iconic movie, but it was a great experience. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to ask you that. Did you, while you were in the process of making it, was there any sense that you were making something special? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was intense. The adrenaline, the testosterone, the, 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 just the, just the adrenaline surge every time you got on that set with Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth and Michael Madsen, Steve Buscemi and Quentin, who is, you know, a powerhouse I and mean, he's just a force of nature. You know, there was this sensation, this, this kind of weird sensation, like, okay, something magical is happening here. Um, did, did, and, you, did you learn something from, uh, Quentin? I mean, obviously your, your trajectory has, kind of moved as we'll, I, we'll talk about more as we get into this, but you've really moved around a lot to your, your current position as director. Do you feel that there's anything that you learned on that very first, I guess, time on Reservoir Dogs that you've now pulled through your career? Well, I think I learned a ton. Um, you know, when you're a grip, uh, which is what I was, which is, is, is for those who don't know what a grip does, it's sort of the non-electrical lighting uh, creating shadows, creating um, uh, diffusion uh, for light. And so I was right there on the set. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that really blew me away about Quentin was he was a first-time director um, with a lot of really seasoned, really experienced actors. And he just sort of never gave up. He was relentless about his vision. He was clear about his vision he was excited, he was enthusiastic, and he was, like, deeply passionate. And I realized that, you know, to go through this, to work these 12 or 15-hour days um, to, to kind of tell your story, you have to be so passionate about it. You can't phone it in. You can't fake your interest in a particular story. You know, you have to kind of live and die by it. And I, I loved watching Quentin because, you know, even when the – you know, chips were down and, and things were rough and we were having a long day and, you know, he wasn't going to let it get to him. He was going to get the shot that he needed no matter what. And that was really inspiring. Very cool. Uh, just, I, 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 
we could probably talk about Reservoir Dogs for the next three hours and, you know, get nowhere or get somewhere uh, very fast, however you want to look at it. Uh, but just kind of moving forward into your career, what did you hop to next? Well, I was, you know, as I said, broker than broke. Uh, I was even more broke after Reservoir Dogs. Um, and I don't come from a family with money. And so it was just a terrible, terribly, terribly difficult struggle. Um, I got a job as a locations assistant. I got a job as a production assistant, craft service. I did everything. And then I landed a job as a runner for Sydney Pollock. Um, and that was, you know, a, a lucky, lucky thing. I mean, for nine months of the three and a half years that I was there, the first nine months, I literally drove to the office, picked up something, dropped it off. I spent my car, I spent my day in my car in LA pre-GPS, so I just had a map book, a Thomas Guide, and a bag of quarters uh, so that when they paged me, um, I could call them back from a payphone. And uh, I ran errands for Sidney Pollock, and that was, you know, he was so gracious, and um, the president of his company, Lindsey Duran, was so gracious, they promoted me to become an assistant, and I started working for Lindsey, and through Lindsay and Sydney, um, I, I worked on this movie, Sense and Sensibility, that Ang Lee directed. And I met all the folks that Ang Lee was working with. And I kind of jumped ship and moved to New York um, to work with Ang and to work at this company, Good Machine, um, and learn how to be a post-production supervisor. And from there, um, I really learned how to produce. So I started producing with a... Um, a very low budget gay romantic comedy called Trick that we made for $400,000 um, and sold it. It was in competition at Sundance. And then, you know, I sort of, you know, um, you know, lucked into it. I said to my colleague, Ann Carey, who's a great producer, I said, What's your favorite script that this company has? And she said, Well, it's a little movie called In the Bedroom. And um, I read the script and I was absolutely blown away, completely blown away, and I had never read anything so good. And I said to the, my bosses, I've got to work on this movie. Um, and unfortunately, I became a producer on it in the bedroom, which was a brutally, brutally difficult movie to make. But it was, um, you know, something I so believed in, and I so believed in the director, Todd Field, and... Um, and uh, we made the, that movie for $1.9 million, and it shockingly ended up going to Sundance, and, um, and then it ended up getting five Oscar nominations, including one for, for me and for Todd for producing. So uh, I, I want to unpack a little bit about not only your kind of jump from post-production supervision, but also what was so difficult about doing in the bedroom. Uh, and it, this isn't an uncommon story. Uh, we actually just had, uh, uh, there at the time of recording, which uh, is uh, Tuesday, March, what is it, 26th today, I think. Uh, yeah. We had uh, uh, Jared Goldman, who uh, helped us, you know, connect for this podcast. Um, his trajectory in the business, very similar. Uh, deliveries, uh, you know, a lot of business affairs. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of very technical stuff that you kind of carry with you to being producing. Did you, do you feel that from where you were as a post-supervisor inside the company, 
to your move to becoming a producer on, on In the Bedroom, was, was there a connection there for you at all in terms of what you were learning, how you understood the business? Or was it just, I'm just going to go after trying to produce this film? Well, I, I think a couple things happened. One is that in my, in my heart of hearts, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this, but you know, I think I always knew I wanted to be a director, and I was a little afraid of that. I was a little afraid of um, my desires to be a director. I, didn't, I hadn't found the thing that I was going to direct. I hadn't found the project. I, you know. And then I thought, I'm really interested in producing because I get to help a director tell their story, and post-production supervision is very, it's sort of like line producing for post-production. And I think there's incredible training for a producer. And the thing, the thing about Good Machine was that Good Machine was a company where, you know, they didn't divide, in Hollywood, there's a big dividing line between, quote, creative and, quote, production. And usually they're separated. So the person who deals with the, the money, the physical production of how do we get to shoot X, Y, and Z is separate from the person who is the, quote, creative executive who deals with notes and story and all that. And what I loved about working at this company in New York was that their philosophy was like, no, actually, great producers do it all. Um, like Garrett Goldman is a great example of a creative producer, a, a physical production producer, and he does it all. And so I learned to, on the one hand, be taking script notes and, and storytelling and creative. And then on the other hand, um, you know, I learned how to physically produce a movie. I mean, how to get, you know, a point A to point B and what you need and permits and, and uh, legal work and agreements and unions and all that. So it was a really, I, I consider it sort of like my master's degree, um, you know, was at Good Machine. And there were three people that ran the company, uh, Ted Hope, James Seamus, and David Lindy. James Seamus and David Lindy went on to run Focus Features. Um, and uh, James Seamus is now directing his first movie. He left Focus about a year ago. David Lindy is a producer now. And it's a prolific producer. And Ted Hope just became the head of Amazon Studios. So they're a pretty amazing group. Um, and they, they threw me into this cauldron and just said, sink or swim. You know, you're going to have to learn everything. You're going to have to know the creative and the, and the production. And you'll either sink or you'll swim. And, uh, you know, and, that, and that's kind of how, uh, how it happened. It was I, just, I, I had such enthusiasm and such drive that they, they let me come on as producer uh, to, to trick that first movie, and that sort of set me on a, on a roll. Yeah, it sounds like just when you kind of step back a bit, there there was a series of very impactful, and I don't want to say lucky, but a lot of the times it's effort, you know, constant effort that just finds its way to luck, and those aren't the two things. It's one leading to the other and because of the other. But from Reservoir Dogs to working with Sidney Pollack to being with such yeah. a support, really what sounds like an incredibly supportive company. Uh, th these are three really amazing experiences that you've had. So when you went on to produce Lost in Translation, which I'm, and I'm, I'm literally reading off of IMDb, so I'm assuming that is the next thing you do. Uh, so if it's not, just say that's, you know, <laughs> incorrect. But if it is true, let's, let's jump there. 
And let me ask you, how did that come about? You know, what, what, uh, you know, that's, that that's a, a pretty a wonderful yeah. thing. It was, it was a wonderful thing. I, uh, had gone right from in the bedroom to a very special movie that I did for HBO that I produced called the Laramie project. Um, it was a very emotional experience. It was dealt with the aftermath of the murder of Matthew Shepard. And, um, uh, it was a great experience. And while I was, um, making, uh, the Laramie project, um, the agent for, uh, Sophia Coppola, Bart Walker, called me and said, you know, you did an amazing job on In the Bedroom and Laramie Project and, you know, Sophia's looking for a producer, somebody who really will hunker down and, you know, uh, she wants to make a movie in Japan. And, and I said, oh, my God, I am, you don't understand. I am an obsessive fan of The Virgin Suicides. I think it's genius. I've seen Sophia's short film, uh, Lick the Star, which was amazing. And I just would relish the opportunity to meet with her. And I met with her in L.A. And um, I just connected with her instantly. And she was, she was very um, shy about the script because it was, it was only 70 pages. And um, I read the script and I was just, I was floored. I mean, I was, it was beautiful. And it really connected to where I was in my own life and I really got it. I really, really got it. And so, um, um, you know, we just, thankfully she, she picked me and, uh, we went to Japan and made a movie. Did you have a hard time if you were the lead producer on it? And I'm taking that leap there. I don't know if there were other producers. I'm sure there were a bunch of other producers who landed up sort of coming on it. Do you, would you consider yourself the lead producer in the sense of you physically produced the movie or would you consider yourself the lead producer? Yeah. Then you went out and you raised the money for it. Like how did that? I did both. Okay. I did both. Um, you know, the raising of the money was really done primarily through Sophia's agents um, because, you know, people had a really wonderful response to the Virgin Suicides. And, um, you know, so the financing was done primarily through Bart Walker. He's an agent at ICM and, um, and, and I was, you know, part of all that. And then, you know, we hit the ground. I mean, we went to Japan, uh, we started prepping, we, you know, and, and it was, it was a whirlwind. I mean, it was, you know, totally surreal. Um, it was life imitating art, art imitating life. And, you know, there were lots of miscommunications and lots that was actually lost in translation. So it's corny to say, but it was happened all the time. And, uh, I had a great, great line producer named Callum Green, who has since gone on to partner with Guillermo del Toro and, um, does all of Guillermo's movies. And we just, you know, brought a small American and British crew and we wanted, our philosophy was, you know, they had, a, the, the Japanese film crews have had bad experiences with American films that, um, the American films would show up and say, this is how it's done. This is how we make movies. And we decided like that, you know, our philosophy was, Hey, you know, we're the guests here. You know, we don't speak the language. We're guests in Japan. So we want to do a hybrid here. We want to, yes, we want to adhere to, you know, the, some of the standard ways that we think of of making movies, but we also want to be flexible and do what's comfortable for a Japanese crew. And so it was really beautiful because 
you know, like I was thinking the other day, I was looking at some pictures from Lost in Translation, and and uh, uh, this is, I think his name is Kizke, and our prop master didn't speak any English. And, I, you know, I had to communicate with him a lot, and it was all through, like, Pictionary and hand signals and little bits of Japanese and little bits of English, and it was really amazing. You know, it was really kind of a life experience. And um, so, when you, know, you when you say that it, there was a different philosophy, can you actually describe what what that was and how that impacted uh, the filmmaking process? Just, I'm, I'm trying to understand. Yeah, what that difference is. Um, but the, yeah, one example is um, the chief. They call it the chief AD, the chief assistant director was very bent out of shape by my presence. Um, he said through a translator to me, look, in Japan, the producer is just some guy with money. And he gives the money and he goes away. And the creative partner for the director is the, the AD, not the producer. And I said, look, I'm not a money guy. I don't have any money, you know? Um, I am the partner to the director here. So you're going to have to get used to that. But I respect the fact that you're used to being the partner to the director and we can sort of figure it out. You know, um, there were, you know, when you're shooting at a location in the U S let's say, and you, uh, you know, you, you, you rent a house that you're going to shoot in. Well, everybody knows it's possible. You'll go late. So, if you go late, you have to pay extra money and, you know, whatever. What we didn't understand was how literal uh, they were about the contracts um, in Japan and the handshakes and that how much honor and saving face was, was at stake. So we went to shoot in the Shabu Shabu restaurant with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. And um, it was 4 p.m., and we were supposed to be done. We had two more shots to get. And I said to the location manager through a translator, I said, I, I think we could do it in 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. And he just looked very upset and he walked away and then came up to me and said to me, I'm resigning. And I said, what do you mean? And this is all through a translator. And he said, well, you've caused me to lose face with the owner of the restaurant. Um, uh, you know, I said, I, I gave my word on my honor that we would be done by 4 p.m. And I said, it's a movie, you know, things happen, you know, there are problems, people are late, you know. And he said, no, 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 this is causing me space. So then this was the fourth day of shooting. The assistant director department said that in solidarity with him, they were going to quit too. Oh my God. So on the fourth day of shooting, Virtually our entire Japanese crew quit. Sorry, I just want to be clear. They, they actually quit. Yeah, and, and they and they so, left not not to return. They well, what happened was I said, okay, okay, wait. Clearly, there's something lost in translation here. There is some grave misunderstanding. You can't do this to us. We can't make the movie. We have to shoot. Everybody go to the production office. So we got into the production office. I got beer for everyone. And me and the cinematographer and Sophia and our line producer Callum and we had this intense three hour meeting 
with the heads of the Japanese departments where we apologized profusely, where we said that we would never intentionally cause someone to lose face, you know, and they accepted our apology by the end of the night after a lot of years, and we went back to work. Okay, so let's just be, I want to, I want to really just net this out for everybody who's listening, because I'm pretty sure this is now a universal truth, not only in North America, but worldwide, beer solves all your problems in the film world. It's amazing what you can do with beer. In fact, I had a, uh, when, when I did Marie Antoinette, which was the, the movie after Lost in Translation, you know, you know, on American movies, there's no alcohol on set. Um, it's just a rule. Somebody could get drunk. Somebody could stumble. Somebody could break something. You just don't drink on set. I mean, that's it. Well, when I got to France, uh, the line producer, the French line producer said to me, what do you mean, no alcohol? And I said, well, it's a movie set. I mean, there's insurance, there's risks. And she said, my dear, you're in France. If you don't provide beer and wine at lunch, there's going to be a riot. And I said, you're, ki- you're kidding me. So I had to call the completion bond company, which is the, the company that guarantees the film will be finished on time and on budget. It's like an insurance company for the money. I had to call them and say, guys, I have to have alcohol here. And what did they um, say? Well, I'm assuming it was film finances out of L.A. or something it was like film, that? It was film finances, and I said, they're not going to work if we don't provide alcohol at lunch. And, um, and uh, the French line producer said to me, she said, you just watch this. The Americans are going to get drunk, and the French will have a nice glass of wine. And, like, nobody on the French side was drunk at lunch. It was just wine and beer with lunch. That's what you do, you know? So, but thankfully they approved it and we got the wine and beer there <laughs> to solve all problems. And were the French right? Were the Americans drunk and the, uh, the French okay? Well, I would say there was the occasional American who would have a little too much at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at this point in your career, uh, you, you not only made uh, a fairly large budgetary leap, from having to do Lost in Translation to Marie Antoinette. Right. Uh, but I'm assuming that you've already, you've also got in the back of your head this, this creative itch to be a director. Do, do you, did you find that the two were competing with one another and just in terms of your uh, creative passions or sort of where you were in your career? Uh, or was the director thing in your mind just kind of, it, it wasn't really there at this moment in your life? Uh, no, it was always there, like a low hum on a radio. I mean, it just was always there. Um, and I tried to ignore it, suppress it, keep it down, you know, but it was always there. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to be a storyteller. Um, I loved producing, and especially to produce for director like Sofia Coppola or Todd Field. I mean, these are masters, you know, and to, you know, that was a real honor and I learned a ton. For me, I think when I finished Marie Antoinette, I was like, okay, I don't want to look in the rearview mirror and say, I should have, could have, would have, you know? So I went to um, my agent at the time and to people that I knew quite well and said, I want to be a director. And they like, the response was not good. Um, the response was, you're a successful producer you're going to blow it. What if you fall flat on your face? 
you know, um, this is crazy. And I just said, but I, I can't live my life like, you know, with a bunch of what ifs. I mean, okay, I might fail, you know, but, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to look back in 30 years and say, I never tried, you know? And, um, HBO had come to me, the timing was, was interesting, because HBO had come to me with this project and said, look, we're very committed to this project, Taking Chance, but we can't crack the script. Will you come in as a producer and help us crack the script and help us find the path toward making a movie? And so I, I said, well, I don't want to do anything that has to do with the Iraq War, or, you know, um, you know, it's been done. Audiences don't want to see it. We all know how we feel about Iraq. And they said, no, 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 this is different. We swear this is different. So I read the short story and I read the initial draft of the screenplay. And I went into HBO and I said, well, I'm going to shock you. And they said, oh, do you want to do it? And I said, well, not only do I want to do it, but I want to write it. And they were like, what are you talking about? You're a producer. And I said, well, you know, I, I feel this in my bones. I want to write it but I'll do it for free and I'm not in the writer's guild. So, you know, if the script is bad, it's like it never existed. I mean, you're, you're not going to lose any money. You're not going to give me credit. You know, I'm the only one that loses here. And they were like, Oh wow, this isn't what we expected, but okay. We'll give you a couple months. So I hunkered down and I rented a place in LA, um, hunkered down and I wrote for a few months and I was absolutely terrified. I was like, what am I doing? I used to have a real job. Now I wake up in the morning and I'm trying to write. Who do I think I am? I'm not a real writer and you know, all that. Now it's just, and, I, I, before we, I, just, I don't mean to cut you off there, but I, I do want to ask yeah. in, in this period of time, were people approaching you to, to either produce other projects uh, or did you have other uh, producing projects that were available to you that you had just yes and i was turning them all down okay are you can i don't know if any of those projects would be projects that have since come out that we would know about or things that you feel comfortable speaking about but i don't think so i mean i worked on brokeback mountain for a while um uh in the in the sort of early stages of the script and budgeting and whatnot um but then i had moved into marie antoinette so the timing would never really work um, but the others I don't know about. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't guess, know what became of them. Yeah, I guess what I'm curious about is 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 the is the pressure that you would be feeling now moving into this you know creative world, basically looking at jobs going out the door. Yeah, out the door. I mean, out the door. Um, you know, I was looking, and I and I made it clear to people, oh, I'm not looking now. I'm not looking. I'm you know. I met with Bennett Miller about Boxcatcher. Um, and I think, you know, the interview went really well, except for when I said, no, there's this thing that I might write <laughs> and, uh, I'm thinking about directing it. And he looked at me a little like, you know, like, Oh, all right. Well, what is it? Are you a producer or are you a director? You know? Uh, and I had a great meeting with him. Um, and this was years ago. This was Boxcatcher took a long time to get made, but I had a really great meeting with him. I was really inspired by him, but I didn't get the job. And I think it's because, you know, my interests were split. Um, and so 
that people like you know, to know who they're like. You, it's it's this old thing, uh, you know. When I when I, I remember this, I, when I first interviewed for my very first job, it was the first question out of their mouth: "Do you want to be a director?" And it was their right. way of. Uh, and it was a business-related job that I was applying for at the time, and it was just it was the industry's way of saying we don't want people who have the aspiration to be a director because it'll interfere with the quote-unquote day job. Yeah, I had to keep it pretty secret, you know, for a while, and was sort of like coming out, you know, oh, yeah. you want to be a director, oh, you know, um, and then you know, so I was I was really terrified. I was having panic attacks and anxiety and talking to a therapist and going, what am I doing? You know, but I felt so passionately about this story and I thought, I have a point of view here. I have something that I want to say. If I can figure out how to say it, you know, then good. Um, if not, I better ditch it pretty quickly and go back to producing. And... Um, Thankfully, after about three months, I turned in the script and one of the executives at HBO called me and said, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm crying. Um, it's beautiful. Um, and then they said, we're going to make an honest man out of you. You're going to join the Writers Guild. We're going to make a writer deal for you. We're going to pay you the right. And we're going to do notes. And how did that so make you I feel went, at the time? Like what? What? It what, was incredible. What? I was like, oh my God. When I got my Writers Guild card, I was like, I'm a real writer. I can't believe this, you know, uh, it was, I was elated, but I still wasn't satisfied because I wanted to, I, my secret agenda was to direct the movie. And, um, Oh, and, 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 they, and they didn't know that. No, HBO, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I said, I'll write and I'll produce. Oh, that's fantastic. And then when the script was, when they deemed that the script was finished, um, you know, uh, they started sending it to directors. Ironically, one of the ones that they sent it to was Sidney Pollack, who was so sweet and so generous and said, I'm so proud of you and you did a great job. He passed on it. But, um, and they started sending it to like A-plus list directors, Sidney Pollack and Frank Darabont and Tom Hanks and George Clooney. And I just went in one day and I said, can I meet with you guys? Yeah, what's it about? Well... Uh, I know you've been going out to all these A-list directors, but when you get to the D-list, I'm right here. And HBO was like, you want to direct it too? And I said, yes, desperately. And I will tell you what it's going to look like, and I will tell you what it's going to feel like, and I, you know, and, um, uh, I, you know, I can walk you through the whole movie. So then they, they had an internal meeting, and they said, okay, if you can land an approvable actor, we're going to let you direct the movie. And so I said, all right, well, I did something really extra stupid. I wrote the, the movie with an actor in mind, which is like a total no-no because you don't know if they're going to be available. You don't know if they're going to be interested. But I written it with Kevin Bacon in mind. I just couldn't, I just couldn't get him out of my head that who would have the gravitas to pull this off, you know? And um, they said, oh, well, you know, gee, that's a nice idea, but Kevin Bacon doesn't do HBO. You know, he doesn't do television, he doesn't do HBO, you know, and I said, well, we got to try. And his agent, um, uh, Michelle Bowen at uh, WME, uh, read it and was really moved by it um, and said, I'm going to try. And um, she, I flew to New York, I had breakfast with Kevin, 
we told, he really wanted to understand why I was telling this story and what my politics were and why I wanted to do something that was not red state or blue state, but was both states. And, and, um, you know, we, he said, you know, I, I was sitting there at breakfast and he said, well, I'm sorry, I've got to run. And I'm thinking, how do I get an answer out of him? And then he gets up to leave and he goes, so are we going to go gray with my hair? And I was like, does that mean that you're doing it? And he said, yeah. So um, we were off to the races. Kevin said yes. And in a matter of, in less than two weeks, I was in pre-production. Unbelievable. Crazy. What, what, what did you make of that at the time? It was whiplash. It was months and months and months of waiting and nothing happening and not having a job and not having much of an income and feeling terribly insecure and panicked to, oh my God, I'm directing a movie, you know? Um, and it was, I was elated. I was terrified, but more elated than terrified. Um, Were you I also just, producing at the time too for that same film or did you bring on another producer? Yeah. To, yeah. Yes. There was a, a, a you know, terrific producer, Brad Cravoy, and we had a great uh, producer, Lloyd Douglas. Um, you know, uh, but yes, I was also a producer and, and HBO said to me, you know, we're a little worried that you won't be able to take off your producer hat and you've got to focus on directing. And I said, you know, don't worry about that. And, you know, it was, it was very liberating. I mean, I, I was able to take off the producer hat when I needed to and just be a director. And, um, you know, it was a very intense experience it's a true story it deals with real grief a real family um, you know the loss of a 19 year old um but we had an amazing experience making the movie and you know thankfully i mean the response was truly wonderful we were in competition at sundance and um and then um you know kevin bacon won the, the golden globe and the sag award for best actor and uh, jockingly, I won the Best Director Award from the DGA and the Best Screenplay Award from the WGA. So it was, uh, it was pretty surreal. And what was crazy was that I think, you know, the film actually influenced policy because the uh, defense secretary at the time, President Obama's defense secretary, uh, Robert Gates, at the time gave a speech and a, a Marine who was a friend of mine called me and said, you know, um, you're not going to believe this, but Bob Gates just talked about your movie. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, he was giving a speech and he said, you know, I saw this movie taking a chance and I think that the, you know, ban on media photography of the caskets should be lifted. And I was like, Oh my God. You know, and, and apparently we found out later that there were posters of the movie in the Pentagon and, you know, that there were, um, uh, you know, the DVD had been passed around the Pentagon and Department of Defense. And it's just pretty surreal. Ama that's tr truly an amazing and inspiring tale. I, it just it's kind of mind bending when you think about how that that sort of all came to play. But. It's just amazing. Uh, I really, I got shivers on uh, just just listening to that story because I just think it's, you know, following what you wanted to do and you made it happen uh, just through sheer will. And uh, and that's just 
just fantastic. Uh, did, Thank did you. Did you um, did you come to? I guess your, your what was your next film? I'm going to skip forward here because I think there was, there was one in between. But uh, Adult Beginners. Um, yeah. Can you can you just talk about how that came to you and how you got it? it I guess embroiled in 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 that project. Yeah. Embroiled um, maybe so I, word, but yeah. I finished uh, Taking Chance yep. and took on some. It was crazy to me. I was you know I needed to make a living and I was getting jobs as a writer. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I started writing for a living, which was, you know, I don't, the truth is I don't love writing. I mean, I, I love it at the end of the process, you know, um, when I go, Oh, you know, everybody's really happy. But during the process, it's a lot of consternation. I, I much prefer uh, directing to, to writing, but I was getting hired as a writer to adapt a book. I got hired for a studio to do a rewrite, you know, and, um, I, I was thinking, you know, taking chance was so emotionally, um, grueling and draining, but powerful. You know, I was, I was walking around with the, the, the weight on my shoulders that I was telling the story of, of real people and that, that, you know, they, that chance's family had to live with that. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to take a really sharp left turn. I want to do a comedy. And I actually, there was a comedy that I wanted to do with my friend Anthony Bregman, who's a brilliant producer. And uh, he really wanted me to do it because he said, I know you're funny. And uh, we showed the company that was financing the movie, Taking Chance, and they said, you know, your movie's not funny. <laughs> and I said, I know, but I don't want to just repeat myself. I want to do different things. And thankfully, this agent uh, that I knew for a long time, uh, Sharon Jackson, who represents uh, Nicole and um, a whole host of people. They were looking for a director for adult beginners. And my name came up because of Anthony Bregman. He said, Ross is a really strong filmmaker who wants to make a comedy. And I think to Nick's credit, to, um, Nicole was a producer and uh, originated the story. I think to Nick's credit, Nick saw, okay, we could hire someone who does comedies, or we could hire this filmmaker who made a really good movie and has a good track record as a producer, you know, and, you know, fingers crossed he'll be funny, too. But we want adult beginners to be more than just funny. We want it to be, you know, emotional and heartfelt. And and so Mark Duplass, who's also a producer, and Nick kind of interviewed me. And, um in the interview process, I kept assuring them that I was funny. And, uh, you know, they said yes to me and, uh, we went out and raised the money. Uh, so is that, a, is that a hard process assuring somebody that you're funny? You know, I find I am, I am in awe of actors. You know, a lot of people go, Oh, actors are so crazy. Actors do this, actors do that. But I think to walk into a room, you know, 20 times a week and get rejected, 20 out of 20 times or, or 19 out of 20 times. It's just brutal. And as a director, you know, I have to audition for things and I find the auditioning process to be brutal. I get really nervous. I get really insecure. Um, it's a dog and pony show, you know, but at the same time, if you can't articulate what the movie's going to be, you're probably not right to direct it. So I get it. 
Um, so it was intimidating for me, trying to convince people that I would be funny, trying to convince people that I could make a very different kind of movie. Um, but I was inspired by, you know, I worked for Sidney Pollack, who made, on the one hand, The Way We Were, and on the other hand, you know, Jeremiah Johnson or, or Three Days in the Condor. I worked for Ang Lee, who made, you know, quiet movies like Back Mountain, and then made Crouching Tigers, Hidden Dragon, and, um, you know, uh, Life of Pi, you know. So I, I really, um, you know, didn't want to be pigeonholed, and I felt it was important to say that. And uh, thankfully, they took me up on my word, and we had a great experience. The movie has Rose Byrne, and who's brilliant, and Bobby Cannavale, um, amazing, and Jane Krakowski from 30 Rock, and Bobby Moynihan from Saturday Night Live, John McHale, Josh Charles, and uh, it's coming out April 24th, and um, it was it was a really wonderful experience. We just went to South by Southwest. We premiered at Toronto in September, and um, yeah, the movie comes out soon. And did you say April 4th is the date? April 24th. April 24th. Okay, good, because we're going to want to yeah. obviously highlight that. Maybe we'll, uh, we haven't actually scheduled this one in, in, the, uh, in the queue yet. We, we, we can hold out. So by the time this, this podcast comes out, we'll, we'll time it so it's just before April 24th. I think that's what we'll do. I'm making that decision now. Um, Excellent. So, executive decision. Executive decision. <laughs> Podcaster's executive decision. So uh, I, I have to ask you this question because Alexis in our office, she said, you have to ask Ross, what was it like to work with Nick Kroll? Amazing. Uh, Nick is, first of all, he's outrageously funny. I mean, he, he knows what's funny. Um, but beyond that, Nick is just an incredible human being. He is a sweet and kind and collaborative, um, strong presence. I mean, he's wonderful. And he was super supportive of me. He was super supportive of the process. Uh, I just loved working with him and uh, hope I get to do it again. Uh, thank you for your time today, Ross. I, I just, there, are, there really is so much more time that we could probably spend just, just talking about making films uh, some of the stories some of those uh, some of those stories from your time working in lost in translation just brilliant uh and i, I wish we had more time today but i, I really i want to thank you for your time and is there do, do you have a online presence are you twittering facebooking or anything i'm like a i'm a twitterer and a facebooker you're a twitter okay if uh, people want to connect with you online at twitter what's the where should they find uh, you ross a cat Ross A. Katz, wonderful. Um, yep. And, uh, yeah, anything you want to leave our listeners with before we kind of call this one a day? Uh, I just appreciate it. hope you'll uh, check it out. And uh, and then next February, I hope you'll check out The Choice. Maybe we'll talk again when uh, that's my new, new movie uh, that's coming out in February. So. Oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, that'd be fantastic, actually.